0: Hey Grace, let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll always, we'll also be flipping over to Hebrews chapter 4 as well. Hebrews chapter 2, and let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you that death has lost and love has won, and that is precisely because of your Son, Jesus Christ. And because of Him, we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 103 that You do not deal with us according to our sins. You do not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love, Father, towards those that fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far do you remove our transgressions and our sins from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For you remember our frame, oh God, you know that we are only dust, and we thank you that you knew that about us, that we were broken because of Adam's sin, and you did something to remedy the situation, which was to send your son Jesus. Would you turn our hearts and our gaze and our affections upon him now as we think of his incarnation. Would you do that by the power of the Spirit? Draw our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to look at two more Christological heresies that popped up in the early church. These two heresies became popular in the 5th century. People were talking about them on Twitter and Facebook. Christian bookstores were stocking their bookshelves with uh, these authors who embraced these heresies. They were probably even putting quotes by these individuals on coffee mugs. Why? Well, because that's what Christians do, right? We love coffee mugs with our quotes and t shirts, but Christians sometimes don't think rightly about Jesus Christ. Christians sometimes have a wrong idea about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Sometimes Christians Don't think rightly about Jesus, and it ends up on our coffee mugs and on our t-shirts and in our Christian bookstores and on Facebook. And that's why I have labored over the past several weeks to remind you that Jesus was and Jesus is a human being. You have heard me repeatedly say, and some of you are so sick of it by now, But I'm okay with that. You've heard me repeatedly say that Jesus was made up of flesh and blood and bone and tissue and that he had armpits and kneecaps and shins and big toes and earlobes and teeth and a tongue and that his breath would smell when he woke up in the morning and that he had to use the restroom and that he got hungry and that he cried and that he wasn't exempt from stubbing his toe or sleeping crooked and waking up with a crick in the neck. I have labored to tell you over and over and over again over the last several weeks that Jesus is very much a human being. Why? Why have I done this? Let me answer that question with our big idea of the sermon today. If Jesus is not the same as you, then Jesus cannot save you. That's why I have labored to stress the full humanity of Jesus Christ over the last few weeks. And I think it's pretty important. If Jesus is not the same as you, then he cannot save you. That's pretty important, isn't it, Christian? If Jesus is not a human being like you, in every respect, sin only accepted, then he cannot save you. You cannot be a Christian if Jesus Christ is not a human being without sin. It's that important. And that's what the author of Hebrews will point out in the two passages that we will look at today. So look at Hebrews chapter 2, and then we'll jump over to Hebrews chapter 4. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now turn over to Hebrews chapter 4 and we'll look at verses 14 through 16. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus had to be like us in every way except he was without sin. If we are to be, be saved then Jesus had to be like us. If we want a merciful high priest to stand for us in the presence of a holy God, then Jesus must be a human being. If we want forgiveness of sins, then Jesus must be human. He must be made up of body and spirit. If we want access to God, then we need Jesus, the God-man. If Jesus is not the same as you, then he cannot save you. The early church struggled with this in the 5th century. Two heresies popped up that stood in stark contrast to what the the author of Hebrews is saying in the passages that we look at. The first heresy to pop up in the 5th century was Nestorianism. Now I know that's a mouthful. This model of Christology takes its name from a man by the name of Nestorius. It is debated among uh, church history scholars uh, how much Nestorius held this view. We do know this. He was a very sloppy writer and was often quick to write things without thinking them through. So we're not sure how much he embraced this. But his name unfortunately got tagged with it. Nestorius was poorly interpreted by his followers and church history cemented him with this Christological Model. How unfortunate. Sorry, Mr. Nestorius, but that's how history works. You can't defend yourself once you die. Nestorianism concerns itself with what is called the Logos Anthropos or the word human Christology. With Nestorianism, Jesus is viewed as fully God and fully man. Sounds good so far, right? Isn't that what we believe here at Grace? That doesn't sound heretical. What's what's wrong with that, pastor, with saying that Jesus is 100% God and that he's 100% man? What's wrong with saying that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Here's where it's wrong. And here's where Nestorius got it wrong. Actually, his followers... Nestorius had such a strong, robust view of Jesus being God. And Nestorius had such a strong, robust view of Jesus being fully man that in Nestorius' mind, Jesus is almost too persons. Yes, Nestorius would say, Jesus is of the same essence and nature as God the Father. He is God. Yes, Jesus is fully human, Nestorius would say. He had fingernails and teeth and hair and armpits. He is fully God, fully man, 100% God, 100% man. It sounds right, right? It does sound right, but there's a subtle difference between Nestorius's view of Jesus and what the Bible affirms. Nestorius was all about the God-man Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. But by emphasizing this so much, Nestorius actually sacrifices the unity of these two natures, God and God. In other words, Nestorius is so gung-ho about the full deity of Jesus, so gung-ho about the full humanity of Jesus, that he downplays the unity of these two natures. Where Nestorius goes wrong is his neglect of the unity of these two natures in one person Nestorius gets an A-plus on the deity of Jesus. Nestorius believes that Jesus is God. Nestorius gets an A-plus on the humanity of Jesus. Nestorius believes that Jesus was a human being. But Nestorius flunks on the unity of these two natures in one person. In the process, Nestorius ends up with not one, but with two Jesuses, one Human Jesus and one divine Jesus. Nestorius understood it this way. Jesus was 100% man and he was 100% God. So when Nestorius reads the Gospels, he sees Jesus the human, Jesus as man sleeping in the boat. And then he sees Jesus the divine, Jesus as God healing a blind man. Nestorius would say, look, it's Jesus the human eating fish. It's Jesus as a human being, as a man playing frisbee with the disciples. It's Jesus the human doing the P90X workouts." Well, maybe it would be God doing the P90X workout. If any of you have ever done P90X or Insanity, you know what I'm talking about. But Nestorius would say, look, it's Jesus the human drinking water. It's Jesus the human walking up to the mountain. But then Nestorius would say, look, it's Jesus as God walking on the water. Jesus as God turning water into wine. Jesus the divine raising Lazarus from the dead. What Nestorius did was carve Jesus up into two parts, part human part divine nestorius carved jesus up like a thanksgiving turkey nestorius would put on his apron and get out his knife and his fork and then he would ask you do you want human jesus or divine jesus do you want god meat or man meat do you want jesus as god or jesus as a human dark meat or light meat which jesus do you want today my friend Listen, Jesus is not a turkey that can be carved up into God sometimes and carved up into man, a human being sometimes. He is both God and man. He is fully God, fully man, 100% God, 100% man, but these two natures are united in one person and not carved up like a butterball turkey. Understand this, Grace, it is not enough to say that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. It is not enough to say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We must, in the same breath and in the same sentence, say that these two natures are united in one person. You have to have the unity of these two natures in the one person, Jesus... Or the Jesus that you ask into your proverbial heart is not the Jesus of the Bible. If you ask uh, uh, Nestorius' Jesus into your heart, then you won't be going to heaven. Why? Because that's not the Christian Christ. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's a turkey Jesus that you want to carve up. Nestorius could not have the human part of Jesus and the God part of Jesus show up at the same time. He had what I call the Jeopardy! daily double Christology. It it goes like this. Look, there's Jesus the divine, Jesus as God healing the blind man. There's Jesus as God walking on water. Jesus as God being transfigured on the mountaintop. Jesus as God doing all of the miraculous things. And then a pause. Look, there's Jesus the human sleeping in the boat. There's Jesus as a man getting hungry, Jesus as a man crying. Nestorius never saw the unity of these two natures. Nestorius never said, look, it's the God-man sleeping in the boat. Look, it's the God-man walking on water. Nestorius was afraid that if the two parts of Jesus got too close to one another, then the divine part would gobble up the human part. Nestorius feared that if the God part would take over the human part and overwhelm the humanity of Jesus so that you would no longer be able to speak of Jesus as being a human being, 100% man. So Nestorius had to separate them. God and man could not show up at the same time in Jesus because God would overwhelm the humanity of Jesus. And so we have Dr. Nestorius in his lab. And he says, I get it. It's like the double mint gum commercials. There's two Jesuses. Nestorius read John 1.14 that way. When Nestorius read the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he believed that sometimes Jesus showed up as God. And sometimes Jesus showed up as a human being. Nestorius was wrong because he did not stress the unity of these two natures in one person. Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully man. Jesus is 100% God, and Jesus is 100% man, united in one person. We can't leave out the phrase, united in one person. Person. We must always say united in one person when we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man, or we will be in danger of becoming Nestorian in our Christology. The problem with Apollinarianism that we looked at last week and Nestorianism is they don't believe that humanity and deity are compatible. Apollinarius and Nestorius believed that God was not compatible with humans because for them to be human was to be sinful. Someone needed to saddle up next to Nestorius and tell him that if Jesus is not the same as you, Nestorius, then Jesus cannot save you. Someone needed to tell Nestorius and his followers that Jesus had two distinct natures, God and man, but that these two natures were not divided or separable. Someone needed to tell Nestorius that Jesus had to be just like us human beings with a body and a spirit, the material and the immaterial, and be without sin Someone needed to tell Nestorius that the full humanity of Jesus had to be united with all that God is in one person. Someone needed to tell Nestorius and his followers that they had sadly invited the wrong Jesus into their proverbial hearts. Someone needed to tell Nestorius that his turkey Jesus that gobbled and got carved up was just a bunch of gobbledygook. And that someone who told Nestorius these things was Cyril, A bishop of Alexandria who called the third ecumenical council together at Ephesus in 431 A.D. Where the teachings of Nestorius were declared heresy and incompatible with the testimonies of the apostles and prophets as recorded in God's word. Notice this is an ecumenical council which means this is the churches over the whole region coming. If all the churches in a region can get together and agree on something then you know it must be true. And they agreed that Nestorius' understanding of Jesus was heresy and incompatible with God's word. Nestorianism was further cemented as heresy when 20 years later in 451 A.D. at the fourth ecumenical council of Chalcedon, they rejected his interpretation of John 1.14. Next Sunday evening, by the way, we're going to be looking at the definition of Chalcedon that came out of 451 A.D., you don't want to be you don't want to miss it it's one of those mind stretching sermons where we're going to talk about how Jesus is only in one place at one time but yet he is everywhere and how Jesus is limited in his knowledge but yet he knows everything so you want to come back next Sunday night for that but Nestorius wasn't the only guy with a weird name in the 5th century to come up with a crazy idea about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. There's another gentleman with a wacky name that, come up with a, that came up with another wacky idea about Jesus. The second heresy to pop up in the 5th century was called Eutychianism. Yes, you guessed it. Eutychianism takes his name from a man named Eutyches, And it's fun to say, isn't it? Like Nestorius, we're not sure how much Eutyches held uh, to this belief and this model, his Christology, but his name is stuck to it, and that's how history works. Eutyches was the head of a monastery in Constantinople, and he and his followers believed this about Jesus they believed that Jesus had two natures. But that he had two natures before the incarnation. That Jesus was God and man in eternity past. That's not Christian orthodox doctrine. We only believe in eternity past that Jesus was the eternal son of God. Eutyches believed that Jesus was God and man in eternity past. And then he became a man. See, it's already getting fuzzy, isn't it? Jesus only uh, had... One nature, though, at some point after the incarnation, Eutyches would say. He said Jesus had two natures before the incarnation, and then sometime after the incarnation, when he was born, then Jesus only had one nature, some new blended nature. Eutyches said that Jesus was divine and human. Eutyches said that Jesus was fully God and fully man for a while. And after the incarnation, at some point, then the divine part of Jesus gobbled up the human part, like a teenager in a box of pizza. It's gone, right? The divine part gobbled up and ate up and absorbed the human part at some point after the incarnation, like a teenager in a box of pizza. Put them in the same room, and soon the pizza will be gobbled up. Eutyches believed that Jesus had a body before the Incarnation, which is wrong. He did not have a body before the Incarnation. But Eutyches believed after the Incarnation, at some point, the human part of Jesus got gobbled up by the deity of Jesus, and you got some form of a third thing at the Incarnation. You have something that's not human and not God. It would be like mixing yellow Gatorade with blue Gatorade and getting what? Green limit Gatorade. Remember, yellow and blue makes green. Here's Eutychianism. 100% God, 100% man. Add them together and you get this third thing. That's his Christology, his view of Christ. Church historian Stephen Nichols says this. To him, to Eutyches, Christ was a third thing. One new and different person fashioned out of two natures is how he liked to put it. That is a theological way of saying yellow and blue makes green. Jesus' human nature, Utiki said, was absorbed by the divine nature. And all of a sudden, you don't have two natures, God and man, united in one person. But you have one new blended nature in one person. And so we see Dr. Eutychius in his, gla- in his lab and he says, I get it. It's like a Ziploc bag. Eutyches creates this other blended Jesus. Jesus has one blended nature in one person. Stephen Nichols also describes the problem with Eutyches' teaching: the problem with stressing the unity without the counterbalance of the two intact natures, as Eutyches does, is that Christ loses his human and divine identity. As such, he is not truly our representative. The Christ of Eutyches falls short of Paul's teaching of Christ as the last Adam. Listen, Grace, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is 100% God, 100% man, united in one person. We can't leave out the phrase united in one person. We must always say united in one person when we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man or we will be in danger of becoming Eutychian in our Christology. Someone needed to saddle up next to Eutyches and tell him Hey, you tickies, if Jesus is not the same as you, then he cannot save you. Someone needed to tell you tickies, and his followers that Jesus had two distinct natures. He was God and he was man. And that those two natures were united together in one person, but not blended together like a smoothie. Someone needed to tell you tickies, that Jesus had to be like us human beings made up of two parts, body and spirit, and that Jesus had to be without sin. Someone needed to tell you, Tikkis, that the full humanity of Jesus had to be united with all that God is in one person and not blended together. Someone needed to tell you, Tickies and his followers, that they had sadly invited the wrong Jesus into their proverbial hearts Someone needed to tell Eutyches that his gobble Jesus, that gobbled up the human part, was just a bunch of gobbledygook. And that someone was Flavian, who was the bishop of Constantinople. Flavian called a synod that met in Constantinople where the teachings of Eutyches were deemed heretical and incompatible with the testimonies of the apostles and prophets as recorded in God's word. Listen, Grace, to be Christian is to affirm this about Jesus, that he is 100% God and 100% man, and those two natures are united together in one person. Jesus is fully God, he is fully man, with those two natures distinct, not blended together, but united in one person. And so the church voiced its creedal stance in the definition of the Council of Chalcedon, which we'll look at next Sunday evening in 451 A.D. We're only going to look at a part of it right now, but this is what they said about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But yet, as regards His manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation, of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, God and man, Without confusion, without change to either nature, without division, without separation, the distinction of both of those natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature, God and man, being preserved and coming together to form one person in subsistence, Not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. To be Christian is to affirm this about Jesus. He is 100% God, 100% man, with those two natures united together in one person. Jesus is fully God. He is fully man with those two natures distinct, not blended together, but united in one person. So what's the big deal About all of this. Why do I labor to show you that Jesus Christ was both human and divine in unity? Besides being a passion of mine, and church history being a passion of mine, that's one reason. Let me explain why. Or let me, better yet, let my friend Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the Cappadocian fathers, here's what he said in his Epistle 101 He said, For that which he has not taken up, he has not saved. What does Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the Cappadocian fathers, mean when he says, For that which Jesus has not taken up, he has not saved. Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the Cappadocian fathers, means that if Jesus did not become like us in every way, except for sin, then he could not save us. I'm just plagiarizing Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the Cappadocian fathers, when I tell you that if Jesus is not the same as you, then Jesus cannot save. You. I labor to teach you this so that you understand that if Jesus was not fully man then he could not save you through his life, death, and resurrection. If he does not take on a human body, then Jesus cannot save you. If Jesus does not become a human being and do what Adam could not do, then we die in our sins. If Jesus did not come as a human being and fully obey the law, then we have no hope. If Jesus did not come as a human being and get a runny nose or a toothache or burp, Or eat certain foods that would upset his stomach. Then we can't be saved. If Jesus Christ did not become a human being. With fingers and toenails and ears. And a belly button and kneecaps and a liver. And lungs and ankles and armpits. Then he cannot save you from the coming wrath of God. He had to take on human flesh and be like us in every respect except he was without sin. If he does not have an immaterial human spirit or soul, then he can't save your soul or your spirit. If he does not have a human physical body, then he cannot save your physical body. He must be like us in every respect yet without sin. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says in 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, That's the humanity side, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be a perfect human being and perfect deity, united together in one person. And this is exactly what the Chalcedonian Creed was emphasizing when it said this. He was like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer. And it was that last phrase there that Cyril of Alexandria used to challenge and to denounce Nestorius, And it can be used equally to denounce Apollinarius and Eutyches. That phrase, of Mary the Virgin, the God bearer, that phrase, the Greek word theotokos, may make some of you uncomfortable to speak of Mary as the Mother of God. Cyril picked a word to pull the rug out from underneath Nestorius' view of Jesus. That word was they ought to cost that word they ought to cost troubles some protestants when they think of mary the god bearer mary being the mother of god so before you get up and run out of here screaming pastor benji is a roman catholic before you do that let me explain because i am not a roman catholic i am protestant When Cyril of Alexandria says that Mary is Theotokos, the God-bearer, he is not speaking about honoring Mary as the life-giver or creator. He is talking about Jesus, the eternal Son of God, being born as a human baby. When Cyril of Alexandria says that Mary is Theotokos, or God-bearer, that Mary is the mother of God, he is saying that Jesus had a mommy. Cyril was saying to Nestorius, because Nestorius said, At the stable, that's just a human baby. That baby is just human. So Cyril says, Come to, with me to the stable Nestorius. Do you see Joseph? Do you see Mary? Do you see Mary having contractions? Do you hear her screaming? Do you see the baby being born? Do you see the baby that traveled Mary's birth canal and is screaming and crying all covered in blood and mucus and afterbirth? Do you see the baby still attached to his mother by the umbilical cord? Nestorius, do you see that baby? That's God. Let me ask you, Grace, like Cyril of Alexandria asked Nestorius, is the baby born in the stable, crying, screaming, covered with blood, mucus, afterbirth, still attached to his mother by the umbilical cord? Is that baby human? Yes. Yes. And is the baby born in the stable, crying, screaming, covered with blood and mucus and afterbirth, still attached to his mother by the umbilical cord? Is that baby the eternal Son of God who is of the same essence and nature as God the Father? Yes. Does that baby have a mommy? Yes. What's her name? It's Mary. That's Cyril's point. That's Chalcedon's point. The point is that at the moment of his deepest humility... When Jesus is blood smeared, covered with mucus and afterbirth, umbilical cords still attached, about to be wiped off and then wrapped up in blankets and then handed to his mommy, Mary, to nurse at her breast, which he will be desperately dependent on for sustenance and nourishment in life for at least the first year of his life. At this moment, the moment of his deepest humility, is Jesus anything other than the eternal Son of God? No, he is in that moment, the eternal Son of God, the Word become flesh. That's the Christian confession. Therefore, you are unable to choose moments in Jesus' life when he is less divine and more human. And you are unable to choose moments in Jesus' life when he is more divine and less human. The point that Cyril of Alexandria was making and the point that Chalcedon is making is that you are unable to choose moments of humility or moments of majesty in Jesus' life. You cannot say that the moments of humility, like being born and still attached to his mother by the umbilical cord and crying and being hungry. You cannot say that that moment of humility, well, that's his humanity. And you can't say that the moments of majesty, like walking on water and being transfigured on the mountaintop, that that's just his divinity. With Jesus, every moment in his life is a moment of his person. Not a moment of one or of his two natures. Not a moment of one nature over the other or one nature under the other. At every moment in Jesus' life, he is the God-man. So Jesus had a mommy. Her name was Mary. Mary is Theotokos, the God-bearer, the mother of God the Son, because she gave birth to him. God the Son had an earthly mommy to no less degree than he had an eternal father. Mary is no less Jesus' earthly mother than God the Father is his heavenly father. He is Mary's son just as much as he is God's son. You can't carve Jesus up like a Thanksgiving turkey You can't let one nature gobble up the other nature. He is the God-man. And that God-man was born all covered in blood. And he died all covered in blood. And he cried when he entered this world, and he cried out as he was leaving this world. He was bloody and cried in birth, and he was bloody and cried in death. And he did all of that to redeem the elect people that his father had given him in eternity past. The question for you today is, will you find yourself among the elect people of God? Will you escape the coming wrath of a holy, just God because of your sin and your rebellion against him? You do that by repenting, by turning from your sin, by owning up to your sin, asking for forgiveness, turning from your rebellion, and trusting in the life of, death, and resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not the same as you, sin only accepted, then he cannot save you. We believe in him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the deep things in your word, which is why we've titled this series, Deep Things. God, may we never be a church that says, I don't want to think about theology. I don't want to think about doctrine. It hurts my brain. May we never be a people like that. May we be a people who have our minds stretched to think deep and long and hard about what it means that Jesus Christ came in the flesh that he is a human being right now may we never be a church that ignores church history God may we recognize those who have gone before us God may we never be a church who says just give me something practical may we be a church that thinks long and hard about all that you are for us in your son Jesus Christ And may we do it absolutely, completely dependent upon your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.